Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case, and today's subject is free speech. What is it, and should we even want it? And my guest today is uh, Professor Daniel Jacobson. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Hi, and thanks for having me here, Spencer. Uh, my pleasure. Now, before we jump into the conversation and I give a proper introduction, I'm going to say a couple things about the show, where it's at. So today is March 28th, 2020, and yesterday I've actually uh, launched, published the first episode, which, which was with Ryan Jenkins. And that I recorded all the way back in August of 2019, and I've just sort of been sitting on it and delaying. Now circumstances have, have changed. I, I was in Wuhan with my, my postdoc, and I had to be evacuated, and I find myself back in the United States waiting out this whole COVID-19 crisis with, with my parents. And so I ended up leaving my, my good microphone in Wuhan because it was too heavy. So I'm going to do the best I can with, with the sound quality uh, I have. Uh, Dan Jacobson is also my first long-distance guest because Ryan was in the room with me when I recorded that. Nonetheless, bear with us. I think we're going to have a great discussion anyway. All right. So I should say more, a little bit more about our guest today. So Professor Dan Jacobson is the head of the uh, Freedom and Flourishing Center at the University of Michigan. Is that right, Dan? Yeah. It's, a, it's really a project more than a center. Center's a little, a little uh, makes it seem like it's a bigger thing. But I just, I run a project out of my office and we, uh, we have postdocs and events, as you know, having come to some of our, our workshops. That's right. That's right. And you are about to transition to with the head of the uh, Center for Western Civilization. Is that right? At the University of Colorado Boulder? Yeah, I'm going to be a professor of philosophy at uh, University, University of Colorado Boulder and direct the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization there. Great. Okay, so you've got the, the titles down more precisely than I have them. All right. So um, I know both of us have an interest in this topic of free speech. Often it's good for philosophers to define their terms before they jump in, but of course we know what a trick that is, uh, giving exact definitions of things. So maybe it might be best to just begin, like, why is this an important topic of conversation, in your view? Sure. Well, around 100 years ago, even in the United States, which we consider the bastion of freedom of speech, there was no freedom to criticize the government, in particular about World War I and conscription, due primarily to Woodrow Wilson, the progressive icon, and his Espionage and Sedition Acts. So freedom of speech just became the consensus view in the United States in the second half of the 20th century, more or less on the left and the right. But now it's under increasing criticism, primarily from progressives, again. And since the progressive left has so much control over elite institutions, such as universities and media, our freedom to express controversial opinions is now in jeopardy. It's much worse in the EU and the UK and trans transnational institutions like the UN, where there are, for instance, what are basically anti-blasphemy laws that are in effect, though to be sure they're inconsistently applied. So it's an important topic because it's under so much threat. If I can add a sort of a historical note here, or add to the historical note, the Supreme Court case that upheld Wilson's terrible anti-speech laws was Schenck versus the United States, 
which has since been overturned. But that's the, that's the decision in which Oliver Wendell Holmes, in perhaps his worst moment, coined the phrase about falsely shouting fire in a theater. That's become the, the great cliche of all freedom of speech discussions. And people don't realize that the phrase was sort of conceived in sin. I think it's worthwhile to, to go back and remember that. What was it that Holmes was analogizing to shouting fire falsely in a theater? Well, it was pamphlets that were being ha handed out by a socialist group protesting World War I and urging people to resist the draft to First World War. And the expression of usually leftist and specifically socialist or communist opinion was upheld, excuse me, the suppression of such speech was upheld under Schenck until around 1950 when freedom of speech really took off in the United States. So really there are two lessons from Schenck, even though it's no longer good law, it's no longer valid law. The first is, yes, there's a sense in which Holmes is right. You need the right conception of what freedom of speech protects, not an overly broad conception in order to defend it effectively. So you need something, you need a notion like the profession and discussion of opinion, say, as opposed to more performative speech, speech acts, such as incitement to panic. Right, right. Okay, so that, that's a good, uh, that's a good uh, starting point here. I don't think that was actually Oliver Wendell Holmes' worst moment. I think his worst moment was... Uh, the three generations of... Uh, cells are enough. Yeah, from Buckner. <laughs> neck and neck, you might say. Uh, he had, he had uh, multiple quite bad moments, let's say. Yeah, so it sounds like, from your introduction, that we're mostly on the same page about this issue. But if anything, I might play the role of, of the devil's advocate here. But before I do that... Um, you've already sort of touched on this topic, but let's go into it in greater detail, which is what, what is free speech exactly? What do we mean by that? Well, I don't know that everyone means the same thing by it, but I have a view about what we should mean by it, and that view is sort of the first lesson from Shank. Freedom of speech is the right not to be punished for expressing, professing, or discussing as a matter of, of, in the course of ethical discussion, that's it, any opinion, regardless of its putative falsity, immorality, or even harmfulness. Now, that is a, understanding freedom of speech that way makes it broader in some respects and narrow in other respects from First Amendment jurisprudence. It's broader because freedom of speech is not just about freedom from punishment by the government, like the First Amendment is, but also about protection from other forms of social punishment. Yes, that's interesting. Um, one of my articles, the one on political correctness that I wrote a year ago or so, I distinguish between narrow free speech and broad free speech. So narrow free speech is strictly exemption from legal punishment. You can't be thrown in jail or fined for what you say. But there's a broader sense, which is you, you can certainly imagine. In fact, dystopians, dystopias like this have been very vividly conceived, like such as the, David Ager's novel, The Circle where you don't have government demands of this kind, but you have all of this extreme social pressure, you know, 
we can certainly imagine a scenario in which there are no government restrictions on speech whatsoever, but the social pressure is so immense that to step out of line would mean losing your job, losing all of your friends, being designated as a social outcast. And I think if we, we reflect on the reasons why we value free speech of the narrow kind, freedom from legal sanction, most of them would probably apply to free speech of, of the broad kind within certain limits. Well, I agree. I think that the First Amendment is too narrow in a sense to capture everything that we should mean by freedom of speech or that we should protect as freedom of speech. It's also a little broad in another respect. I mentioned the, the expression of opinion, profession and discussion of opinion, but that doesn't obviously cover, say, nude dancing, which has been found to be protected expression under the First Amendment. I don't actually think it should be protected qua free speech. I think it should be protected on other grounds, sexual autonomy and freedom of association sorts of grounds. It's not what I mean by freedom of speech. And what I, it's not what John Stuart Mill and the classical liberals who, who most famously defended freedom of speech meant by it primarily. I understand why it is that opinion has been broadened to include artistic expression, and it's hard to draw a line when it comes to things like flag waving and flag burning, for instance, which obviously are primarily expressive acts. The trouble is that all sorts of actions express opinions and sentiments, including actions that have to be made illegal and that aren't really about speech at all. So let's leave First Amendment jurisprudence uh, and talk about freedom of speech, really, and understand that we're talking about a slightly narrower subject, but we're applying it, as you say, to a broader context. We're applying it to social punishment, not just legal punishment. I agree. So you made this, this, this distinction between speech acts and expressions of the kind that would, that, that would be covered by the First Amendment and also would be covered by what we both call your freedom of speech in the broader sense. So just to sort of head off a straw man and, he and help clarify this, nobody's saying that, who, nobody who defends free speech is saying that a mafia boss is allowed to say, go ahead and, and uh, whack this guy and I'll pay you $10,000. That's not, that's not covered in this because that's a, that's a speech act that makes one complicit in murder. Of course, the only people who would say that, unfortunately some people do, they say it in the, in the course of creating straw man arguments against freedom of speech. Catherine McKinnon uses exactly that, that uh, example. That's just intellectually dishonest. That's not freedom of speech at all. It's, freedom of speech is not, is not the freedom to do anything that you want just because you're doing it through the medium of words. It's about, Mill draw the, drew the distinction between opinion and action. If you want to be more, you want to put into more contemporary philosophy of language terms. Well, these are, this is actually a bit archaic, but you might talk about constantive versus performative speech acts. But intuitively, it's about professing and discussing opinions as opposed to the other things that one can do with words, which are often much more performative. As you say, you can order someone to murder, you can incite a riot, you can deliberately incite a panic, those sorts of things. That's not, that's beyond the pale. That's not what's, what anybody, any defender of freedom of speech wants to defend. Right. 
Well, so certainly the uh, the mafia boss case I raised is a clear cut case, but I, I wonder if there are these other cases where the distinction between expression and performative use of words gets a little bit fuzzy, right? So, I mean, inciting a riot, you know, if I'm, if, you know, there's a mob with torches and in front of your house, and then I say, burn down Dan Jacobson's house, that falls into the, into the beyond the pale category. But what if I say, I think it would be a good idea if you burn down Dan Jacobson's house? Or what if I say it and it's not right in front of your house, it's a mile away. So my, my point is just, you know, when you think about cases like that, it might be, it might be a little fuzzy where, where the line is, is to be drawn between these two categories. Of course, all distinctions. As philosophers, we know that all distinctions uh, have hard cases. They all, they all have, they're all somewhat vague in the way that they, in the way that they apply to cases that clever philosophers can, can come up with. But that doesn't mean that no distinction can bear any weight. So what we need to do is to find, to find the sorts of distinctions that are least subject to collapsing when we need them most. And I put it to you that the one, when it comes to freedom of speech, they ought to be morally and politically neutral. That is, they, you're, what it is that's being protected ought to be defined in a way that's not subject to substantive moral or political judgment, say, for whether or not it's immoral or for that matter, false or harmful. And I think that the distinction between assertion, let's just say, that's too rough because it's not just, I believe X, it could be, well, what about X? Do we really have enough evidence to, to, uh, uh, to reject it, say? Um, the distinction between opinion and action is sufficiently removed from substantive moral and political judgment that it does a pretty good job of holding up, even though the second lesson from Schenck, it can still be abused. That's what, that's what Holmes does. Holmes takes, takes a case of advocating what is breaking the law, it was resisting the draft. And he, his analogy conflates that with a performative speech act of inciting a riot. So what the second, the second lesson, the bad lesson of Shank is that exceptions to the doctrine are inevitably abused. So you need something that's evaluatively neutral, like the distinction between opinion and action, in order to try to avoid such abuse as much as possible. So even advocating harmful or unlawful conduct is opinion, not action. Some of what you're saying here worries me a little bit for this reason, which is in another area of philosophy, you're, um, I'm sure, familiar with, in uh, like the ethical distinction between doing and allowing, a lot of philosophers have tried to undermine these two categories of behavior by pointing to vague cases and trying to, to say, well, look, it looks like we just make an arbitrary decision which one is which and which one is the other. And I felt that there's some kind of force between saying that like this action is essentially a, a killing and this action is essentially some other kind die. of action that yeah a letting die or some other action that has the upshot of someone dying and i've been kind of not totally persuaded but i'm i'm somewhat moved by consequentialist critiques that say 
well, we're parsing it a little fine, aren't we, by, by making those sorts of distinctions. And, and the worry that I'm now thinking of is maybe with, we're going to run into similar kinds of worries with these, with these different categories of, of behavior, the performative speech and the expressive speech. Well, on another day, we can have the we can have a discussion about the right kind of consequentialist to be. But today, what I'll say is, we have, you can't get away from there being hard cases and distinctions that can be muddled. I'll give you three of them that are at the heart of this debate. One is the discussion between punishment and something else, which can look a lot like punishment. We said. Freedom of speech is is protection from even social punishment. Well, what if I just want to avoid you because the opinions that you keep professing or always want to discuss, I find so obnoxious. Surely, via freedom of association, I can want to avoid your company because I don't want to talk about your, I don't want to hear these these opinions of yours that I've I've heard so much uh, and that strike me as, as, as obnoxious. That doesn't seem like it's punishing you. That seems like something else. Even though, if I did something that was relatively similar, like, say, organize people to ostracize you on grounds of your being a whatever, some, you're holding some view that, that my friends and I think is uncool or immoral. That wouldn't be punishment, whereas all of me and my friends coming around to thinking that we don't want to hang around with Spencer because he holds that uncool opinion isn't punishment. It's just us exercising our freedom of association, even though, as far as you're concerned, it might have exactly the same upshot. So that's a hard case. That's a distinction that, that you need, I think, in order to get to, to have this argument. Uh, there, are, there are a couple others that might come up and that will come up I expect in our discussion, but my general view about this, which is the same thing as my general, my view about, about action and omission or killing and letting die is as philosophers, the, the moral of the story for us when we see how we see that there are always hard cases for any distinction shouldn't be to give up on distinctions. It should be to make sure that the ones that we're arguing about are really the hard cases and not the clear cases. So as long as we're doing that, I'm okay. Even though I'll have some some views, and they may differ from yours, about what constitutes punishment or about what sorts of actions are genuinely incitement, constitute incitement to riot, as opposed to merely having caused a riot, say. If there's really a riot, and you really said something, that has that kind of causal effect, and we're arguing about whether or not you incited it, well, at least, at least we're arguing about the right kind of thing, rather than saying, well, you can't, you can't advocate against the draft because, you, because that's, just, that's just like yelling fire in a theater, falsely right. yelling fire. Right. So one thing that stands out to me is if, if we're defining freedom of speech in the narrow sense and even in the broad sense as freedom from punishment, and then what, what counts as punishment becomes important. And it sounds like you're suggesting that intention matters a lot. So like even having freedom of speech in the broad sense of freedom of speech doesn't protect me from quite serious averse consequences from 
my, what I say. Is that correct? Absolutely right. If you go around uh, advocating Nazism, say, which I think is within your rights to do. I mean, it is under the First Amendment. That's not, so it is under your legal rights. I think it's in your moral right because I believe in freedom of speech. Nevertheless, if you do, I'm not going to want to associate with you. And a bunch of other people aren't either. So, and that might, that might be as much of a harm to you as if we were trying to punish you, but we're not. And the fact that it's a harm doesn't make it punishment. You know, this is interesting, and it makes me want to raise this kind of a case for you. Because my, my concern here is that maybe, as, as you're now explaining it to me, free speech in even the broad sense doesn't necessarily protect you, or it's arguable whether it does, whether it protects you from certain kinds of adverse actions. I know that we would both be opposed to. So, for example, if anyone who held a conservative view in philosophy was just held to be so toxic as to be unhirable, or even... That's a wild hypothetical, Spencer. I can't even really imagine. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. Just suppose in a distant possible world, I think it's a possible world, maybe. It's on the borderlines of what we can do. All right. For the the sake of argument. For the sake of argument. Suppose that were to happen. And And then they could say... And then the conservative says, hey, look, um, I'm being ostracized. I'm being, you know, I'm being persecuted for my beliefs. My, my freedom of speech in the broad sense is being violated. They could say, oh, no, 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 because our purpose wasn't to punish you. Our purpose was to protect the, our fragile institutions from hate speech and that sort of thing. It seems like the way you've defined speech now makes that move available for them. Well, that move is always available. I'm, I think that this, is, this definition of freedom of speech is the best protection against that kind of, that, that kind of move for reasons that might, that might come up. What's true is that sometimes issues of freedom of speech, in particular um, issues of freedom of speech when they have to do with the academy, so when they, when they bump up against um, academic freedom, or, which is a somewhat different concept, freedom of speech might not be the biggest problem in the silencing and bias against, against um, unpopular opinion in the academy. It might be a matter of capture of elite institutions, in this case, university, by one side of the political spectrum, which then in, I'll I'll be more charitable than I actually, than I actually believe here, in exercising their genuine judgment, their expertise about who's got a, who's got an interesting view, which, which sorts of views are, are, worth, are worth publishing in journals, are worth starting discussions about, are worth taking seriously as objections, what sort of scholars are worth hiring or having out to speak. The problem here might be that, that uh, the corruptions occurred with the, in the long march through our institutions, 
by the left, which has led to led to to some people at least making sincere judgments about the quality of various arguments and papers and research projects sincerely. So they don't mean to punish them, they just don't think that it's worth taking seriously. The, the corruption that has come, come before the freedom of speech issue, people who are in charge of philosophy departments, for instance, ought to be exercising their judgment about whose views are interesting enough to invite to campus or to publish in journals or to hire. Unfortunately, when you have, when you have so much conformism, intellectual and political conformism, those judgments uh, become more and more, more and more unreliable for a number of reasons. Group polarization is one of them, um, but just, just standard, standard forms of cognitive bias that are really a little bit, they're tangential to freedom of speech, though freedom of speech is, is the only cure for them. But in itself, it's not, it's not just a cure. And I think that's what you're pointing out with this, uh, with, with this, uh, this argument. People can take over institutions without exactly violating freedom of speech merely by being politically or intellectually biased and then exercising their, judge, their sincere judgment. Huh, interesting. So, so I'm hearing you say that the academic freedom debate is really a separate but related sort of problem. Or is That's I, what I think. Yeah, I would have thought of it more as like a special case of a problem of broad freedom of speech, but I can see your point. I can see how you're... So, so look, I, 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 maybe we don't disagree about this as much as it, it seemed. There are cases where what gets called academic freedom is genuinely a freedom of speech issue. So when um, Charles Murray comes to the University of Michigan, say, in an actual case, and gets harassed for 45 minutes, people shine lights in his eyes, they come on onto the, the podium and yell at him, they put, um, uh, they have their phones go off, that, that sort of thing. That's genuinely exercising a heckler's veto in order to silence him. He was invited by someone, someone who was exercising his or her academic freedom by deciding that his ideas were uh, worth hearing, and they succeeded in shutting it down. And to the great shame of the University of Michigan, that from the, from the president of the institution on down, uh, that was allowed to happen. That's genuinely freedom of speech. If it had been me, if I'd been the one who invited Charles Murray, then my academic freedom uh, would have been violated by that. So there are cases and there are cases. On the other hand, if it's just the case that the humanities and the social sciences sort of gradually wander more and more leftward demographically and through some deliberate and some just, just natural processes, that's a different problem. It's a related problem, but it, it will it will issue in some some of the some similar things, such as students being able to go through four years of of, of college, even even as philosophy majors or political philosophy majors, and never having read any Hayek, say. But 
I don't think that I think that the I think that the real problem, the root of the problem, is sort of prior to freedom of speech in this in this case. Right. Right. As opposed to Charles Murray. Right. So I wanted to then move on to what the the main kinds of arguments are for freedom of speech. My understanding is there are two kinds of arguments. There's sort of like a a deontology-based argument or a natural law-based argument associated with like John Locke and the founding forefathers of the United States. And then you've got this later utilitarian argument most associated with John Stuart Mill that argues that freedom of speech promotes the common good in the long run or something along those lines. So do you think that's a, that's a right way of categorizing the arguments for freedom of speech? Yes, I think that's the right way of categorizing arguments for classical liberalism generally. Sometimes they're defended on broadly natural rights view and sometimes indirectly on, on an indirect utilitarian uh, defense of, of rights. And, Locke and Mill are great exemplars to use there. All right. So how does the natural rights argument go, roughly? Yeah. You'd be better off asking someone who's more sympathetic to this than I am, frankly. But, as, but I think that the way that it, that it should go is, first, of course, Locke puts self-ownership at the, at the core of all of his arguments for rights. And that's plausible, I think. If 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 anything, if if anything, it will work as a as a first principle. And I'm not so much a first principle kind of guy. Then self ownership seems pretty plausible. Self ownership uh, seems to imply liberty of conscience, but that then raises a big question of how it is that you get from my own liberty of conscience to a freedom to expose you, at least if you're not careful enough in, in, uh, in, in, in keeping me and my ideas away from you, expose you to my opinions, even if you don't want to be exposed to them. Now, Mill has an argument about the, what he calls the practical inseparability of the liberties of conscience, but that's, that's a really long story. You need something like that, I think, in order to get from self-ownership to freedom to express opinions publicly. And I'm not sure how a Lockean can best do it, frankly. I think you'd be better off asking Michael Humer for that argument. If anybody can, 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 can give a good argument for that, I'll bet it would be him. You know, uh, Mike Humer, I think, doesn't so much give like a, like a broad theoretical foundations for some of this. He just begin, sort of begins with common sense intuitions and then argues against state restrictions. So, but I, I see your point. Maybe we should move on to the view you're more sympathetic with, the one that, and the one that indeed it seems like you've put some work into developing, which is the Mills utility-based argument for freedom of speech. Yeah, well, I feel more comfortable. I feel more comfortable speaking about that because I've thought about it a lot more and I find it more defensible, at least philosophically defensible, right? There might be good. <laughs> there might be good reasons to pretend um, something else, but this is the view that I'd want to defend. Uh, so I think that the argument, as given in Mill, is for there being a sphere of liberty that surrounds each individual, in which we have the right to act without coercive interference, 
either from the state or society. And that these rights, this doctrine of the rights of, of individuality, as he puts it, are based on moral rules, but they're the most important moral rules, the ones that are most crucial to our well-being. Mill believes that our mental well-being is the most important aspect of our well-being, and he thinks that freedom of speech is essential to our mental well-being. Mill thinks that there's a sphere of liberty surrounding the individual in which we have the right to act without coercive interference from either the state or other people or society. And he thinks that these rights, what he calls the, he calls this the doctrine of the rights of individuality. He thinks they're based, they're based on the most important moral rules. The most important moral rules are the ones that are most essential to our well-being. Those are the ones that support rights and he thinks that freedom of speech in particular is crucial to our mental well-being upon which all our other well-being depends. Those moral, these moral rules, the ones that uh, establish rights and also just establish wrong action, for Mill are ultimately justified by their tendency to promote human flourishing. Not in all societies, because societies will differ um, on what moral rules are best in them, but he thinks in free societies, maybe not at every, in fact, he thinks, he thinks not at every level of development of society. But once we've, once we've reached the point where we're capable of being improved by free and open discussion, then he thinks that freedom of speech is within this sphere of liberty. Interesting. I've got a couple of questions about this. One of them is, couldn't somebody uh, basically, without rejecting his view, just sort of make it moot by saying, well, we haven't reached that point of development yet. Look at the internet. You know, we're not able to be enlightened by free exchange of ideas. We haven't reached that point yet. I think actually Marcuse does want to say something like this. Well, let's not get into Marcuse uh, uh, exegesis. I, I have a more Nietzschean reading of Marcuse, I suspect, than you do. Um, but... It's right, you're, you're absolutely right, that any kind of indirect rule utilitarian argument for anything could, if the facts were different, if the facts are different from what I think they are, would yield different conclusions. So there's a way in which the million, the million defense of freedom of speech is always, and inevitably open to the objection that actually some other doctrine that's more narrow than freedom of speech, say freedom of moral speech, or an exception for racist speech, or an exception or a punching Nazis exception or something like that, would better, those sorts of rules would better promote human flourishing than freedom of speech. Now, I think at this point, I mean, we have to, we have to, to grant, as I, as I just did, that if the facts were that way, then something other than freedom of speech would be justified. But this is the moment at which you have to remember the second, the negative lesson of Shank, that exceptions to freedom of speech had better not be reliant on political or moral judgments or else they'll, they'll inevitably be abused. They'll be abused not just because 
this, as we noted earlier, there are hard cases for any distinction, genuinely hard cases. But because when you create an exception that's based on a moral or on substantive moral or political judgment, you thereby create an incentive. Here's the incentive. The incentive is to take all unpopular opinion and to conflate it with whatever it is that's your exception. So we see this happening. We see this happening on the internet with fascism, say. Suddenly, anything I don't like is fascism. If anything that I don't like is, you know, literally, in the sense of figuratively, you're a Nazi. And I take, I take the internet, although, you know, social media is definitely not a place where, where it's not a marketplace of ideas in the sense that where, where the best ideas end up winning out in any kind of permanent way. It's more like a place where bad speech has a tendency to drive out good speech. Nevertheless, what you see in this bad speech on social media, in particular, that's what you really mean by the internet. I mean, there are, you know, the internet's a big thing, and there are lots of things that go on the internet, some of, many of which are really good and really supportive of freedom of speech. But social media, Twitter, say, that doesn't. That's a bad speech driving out good speech case. But what you see, the kind of bad speech that drives out good speech is the literally a Nazi speech. Uh, that is to say, any, any view that deviates from the um, the, those political beliefs that I hold to be self-evident, most important, the, the dogmas of my political religion, that's, that's literally fascism. Now, I wonder, though, I wonder if there are ways of defining um, specific categories of speech narrowly enough and indexed to particular historical events in a way that it does not admit of this kind of pernicious expansion that you're describing, or at least not as easily. So, for example, what about Germany's law against Holocaust denial? I don't know how they actually define Holocaust denial, but let's suppose that it's um, speech that denies the historical reality of, you know, the Nazi crime against six million Jews and five million other people that took place in this, you know, uh, this five-year period in the middle of the 20th century. Something like that, it's really hard to say that anybody who disagrees with me is doing that in particular. Although it might set a precedent for, well, you shouldn't be able to deny the slavery of Africans either. You know, so it, it, it could, there's a slippery slope there. It, it does. We, and, 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 and it's not just a theoretical slippery slope. It's a, slippery, it's, a, it's a slope that we've slid down because then denialism becomes the thing that we can suppress, that we can silence. And climate change denialism gets put on a par with Holocaust denialism. Personally, as a Jew, I take very little comfort in the fact that it's illegal to... Uh, to deny the Holocaust in Germany. I don't think that, I don't think that's helped the Jews. I don't think that helps the Jews in, in Europe or in England or in various places where hate speech is, is not protected by law. So of course there's, you know, there's the harm side. There's also the benefit side. I think there's, I think that the benefits of, of laws suppressing speech are often massively overrated. I also think on the harm side that you do see, you see just this 
sort of abuse. And the, the expansion of denialism is, is, is one of them. It's, it's not always, of course, an expansion. Sometimes it's conceptual engineering of another sort, but it's politically based conceptual engineering. So if you, if you write a fancy uh, paper, philosophy paper, in which you argue that in order for an action to be racist, there has to be some kind of underlying system of oppression or something like that, so that whatever it is that one says about white people, that doesn't, that can't count as racism because it lacks this aspect, this element of systemic oppression. Well, you know, there's a way in which as philosophers, you get to use the term however you want, as long as you define it clearly. That's, we, we allow that sort of thing outside of the moral and political context, but in moral and political contexts, it's not, it's, it's not innocent because the conceptual engineering is being used to advance a, a, a political end. And I think that's inevitable. I, I, guess, I guess because I'm quite influenced by Nietzsche on, on these sorts of issues. If you give people these sorts of tools, then you incentivize them. You incentivize them to play up the harm of, of hearing opinions they don't like and you play up the, and you incentivize the conflation of unpopular opinions into those categories that are claimed to be beyond the pale of, of opinions that should be allowed to be professed or discussed. Yeah, so I'm sympathetic with this critique that however you define the exception will admit to expansion. There's nothing so sui generis, not even the Holocaust, that someone can't come along and try to broaden it to include something else. And indeed, you would expect people to do exactly that because the, de the desire to shut up our political opponents is extremely strong, extremely strong. I can't remember the name of the person who said this, but I think it was a former editor of, maybe it was at the Los Angeles Times who said, censorship is the strongest human instinct. Sex is a distant second. And you can see the evidence for that. Mill refers to this as adverse discussion. That is hearing the opinion, hearing opinions that one despises, or at any rate that are antagonistic to the, our creedal beliefs. And what he notes about adverse discussion is just what, just what you're, what you're noting. No, it, it, almost everybody hates it. We are, we're, we're hardwired not to like it. We want to hear people who, defend what we antecedently believe, and we don't want to hear arguments that challenge what we antecedently believe, and the more that our, those beliefs come close to our, to our most fundamental moral, religious, political creeds, the more profound is that antipathy. That's, that's the underlying aspect of human nature that I think makes the claim that freedom of speech is essential to our mental well-being is so plausible. A set of connected cognitive biases that are just part of human nature. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that we have those, those biases. And it's difficult to know. So, so one way of digging in here is to say, that's right, well, I reject that very notion of neutrality. Why should we be neutral? 
between the right view and the wrong view? Why should we be neutral between good and evil? Isn't this just complacency with evil? Shouldn't we have a society that's ordered toward the correct and righteous opinions and condemn hatred? What's so bad about that? That sounds actually kind of appealing. Yeah, it does. As long as you have no fear that the people who are going to be in a position of power to define what, which opinions are good and which power, which opinions are evil are always going to be, are always going to be your side rather than the other side. One of the worst consequences of the profound political skew in the academy is precisely that academics are no longer in any fear that they will ever lose control of those exercises. Specifically, progressive academics are no longer under any fear that they're ever going to lose control of those, uh, of, of those levers of power. They don't have any reason to think that President Trump is going to be able to do anything about, about uh, U.S. universities, and they shouldn't have any such fear. That is, that that's not going to happen. So they can lose politically but they can't lose in the bastions in these institutions in which, in which the long march has been, the long Gramscian march has been, has been successful. So part of it, part of the problem is that view always sounds, it, it, it sounds super attractive as long as you don't have to worry about who it is who's going to be deciding which opinions are good and which opinions are, are bad. I think there's a more profound worry than that sort of, Nietzsche and, well, and, and, and just, or Foucaultian, dare I say, thought that you need, to, you need to think about rules that you can support and that will protect you even if you're not in power. There's also the point that due to these forms of cognitive bias, you're actually not going to do yourself any favor. You're not going to you're not going to strengthen the justification of your views by not hearing or making it impossible to hear the strongest arguments against them, even if you're right, even if your views are true, even if they're the moral ones, even if the opposition is harmful. We're just if we indulge ourselves in our conformism and our confirmation bias and in our our antipathy to adverse to adverse discussion, then what ends up happening is the worst part of our view is the part that we, that we mean as an answer to the opposition. That's a million, that's, that's a rough paraphrase of an argument of Mills in chapter two of Law and Liberty. Um, I think it's a profound insight of Mills though. What you see is that straw man positions in philosophy and amongst philosophers are just as often, if not more often, created by ignorance than by intellectual dishonesty. People genuinely don't know because they haven't heard, because they've deliberately not heard, or other people have made it the case that they can avoid hearing the strongest arguments of the opposition. Now, the other thing is about that, hearing an argument given from somebody who actually believes it and someone who might even be your intellectual peer is much different than just thinking about it in the abstract. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've certainly had this experience where I've thought of an objection and I've dismissed it and thought, yeah, yeah. And then someone has raised that objection to me and then hearing it, it seems more forceful to me. 
Um, have you had that experience? Yeah, I've had that experience. I've also had the, also had the more shocking experience of uh, hearing an objection and hearing it, hearing it developed in a way that I hadn't, I hadn't imagined and is far more powerful than the way that I imagined. I make a strong claim here. If you're not doing this kind of thing, if you're not in the business of trying to, trying your best to develop the best objections to your view and giving an intellectually honest answer to them, then you are not doing philosophy. You're not being a philosopher. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think that there are aspects in which philosophy deviates as it's practiced, professional philosophy in 21st century America and elsewhere has deviated from it. So a lot of what gets called philosophy is no longer in that business. It's in the business of promoting the good as the good by the lights of the philosopher rather than by trying to have, to try to admitting the weaknesses of one's own argument, the strongest objections that, that people can have to it and, and doing one's best to answer them and, and admit where it is that things could fall apart. Now, the other thing is, some people think that's well and good for views that are legitimate or not beyond the pale, but then there are views that are beyond the pale where this doesn't apply at all. So one of the, one of the presuppositions of the movement for no platforming is that these are views no one will miss. These are views no one has anything to gain from hearing. Whereas I, I tend to think that we would overlook certain benefits from people being exposed to really noxious, terrible, irrational views from time to time. Now, I don't recommend making this kind of stuff, you know, most of what you read, but every once and again, exposing yourself to like a horrendous opinion and thinking, what's wrong with it? What fallacy is being committed? What would I say to a person who said this to me? I think that's a useful exercise. And I think... I actually wonder how many college students, if they were confronted with a sincere flat earther who threw out these sophistical but sophisticated sounding arguments, I wonder how many of them would be able to say what's wrong with it or something like that. And likewise for Holocaust denial, for all sorts of other beliefs. Um, I think we underestimate the good that might come of allowing people that kind of engagement. So I agree with you, of course, completely. When, when I teach the moral and political philosophy of Mill, I teach Mill's uh, exchange with Thomas Carlyle over slavery, where Carlyle is a paternalistic defender of slavery. And it's, you know, it's hard reading. In a sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's ugly stuff. But I, I absolutely think that people get a lot out, not just out of reading Mill, who's, who comes off looking very good in this exchange, but from reading Carlyle. So I agree with you, but, you know, when I look around at the developments of the last five to 10 years, the great awakening, call it what you will, what I'm struck by isn't even this argument so much, isn't even this argument, which isn't to say they don't believe it. It's that I think that that recent events have shown just how far it is that activists 
are happy to extend the range of opinions that shouldn't get a platform. So the view that biological sex is a thing, say, it's not just Holocaust denial. It's, it's all sorts of views that are now, now one objects to or one, or one, uh, one professes own on pain of really harsh treatment by, by professional philosophers, by exactly the, the sort of people who, due to what it is that we're supposed to be, due to what our norms, our intellectual norms are supposed to be, ought to be the last people to be engaging in this, in this kind of um, browbeating and um, silencing and punishment, social punishment and stigmatization of unpopular opinion. But, but, but there it is, and, and that's, what, that, that's how things are now. One thing about the Great Awakening that, that's occurred to me is it seems to me one of the features of this age is an impatience for any kind of sort of meta norms or structural rules. So for example, maybe allowing this particular person to say his particular view, maybe there's no good about that instance of, of, of exercise of free speech. Maybe it's only bad. There are costs to free speech. The costs are we have to hear a lot of stuff not worth hearing. People say things not worth saying, and we have to allow it. And people convince other people of pernicious doctrines, like socialism, in my opinion. So yeah, there absolutely are costs of pernicious. So, but the point is that people look, say, this is bad, ban it, get rid of it. There's no sort of reflection on this, like the the, the general structure, like what kind of rules are we going to live by? And I, I suspect... Now, maybe I, I could be getting the causality backwards here. Well, the one could be causing the other, but I suspect the causation goes this way, which is the left has made some fairly astonishing cultural advances as far as the sexual revolution goes, as far as gay rights goes. They seem to, ha- they seem to be energized with this kind of view that, my goodness, we really can conquer the culture. One more strong push, and then everyone will agree with us and things will be locked in in our favor forever and we'll not even have to consider the hypothetical that what if the bigots were in charge someday because we're just going to remain in charge that's what we're going to do and so there's a kind of i think illusion that a, a cons- we're, we're this far away from a consensus we're this far away for or, or nearly a consensus that's so broad that it'll be easy to stamp out all of the remaining resistance and I, it's an illusion. The, the, the consensus isn't nearly as broad and deep as they as they think it is. Outside of outside of elite institutions, it isn't. That, that, that's right. Right. So so there's this argument. I mean, one of the most one of the most not philosophically deep, but practically effective arguments for freedom of speech has always been sort of it's a it's a second best. I'm not advocating this, but I, I, I but this is this is something that's convinced a lot of people. The best thing, of course, Spencer, would be for our views to be allowed free expression everywhere. And the views that we despise should be, you know, strictly regulated and only, only read, you know, where it's safe to do so. Things like that. 
Of course, we realize that, I'm being facetious, as you know. Um, uh, our opponents think the same thing. They have opposite views. The trouble is, we have to worry about them being in control, and they have to worry about us being in control. And even though we each think the best thing is that our views can be, that we are free to express our views and we can silence opposing views, it's so important to us to be able to advocate our views and we're, and we're worried about them silencing us that we're willing to compromise for the second best position in which, well, I, at least I get to advocate the things that I think are true and moral and beneficial to, to people at the expense that I have to allow the other side to do that too. That's a pretty good trade-off as long as, as you say, there really is as much reason to fear being oppressed as there is to hope for, to be able to oppress the other. But it falls apart as soon as people get the true or false conviction that they can actually get away with being the ones who always get to decide. You see, and, that strikes me as the view, who needs balance of powers? Who needs this? Like, let's just elect one all-powerful king who can who will, who will be good to elect a good king? We'll have a good king and have that person in power forever, and he'll put all of the right laws in place. We just got to get the right king. But like it seems like you say that view to people, you tell you explain that view to people, and they're like, no, that's ridiculous because the king might turn out not to be totally good, or he's going to die, and then his son might be an ass, as has happened so many times in history, <laughs> uh, or. You know, any number of things like that. That doesn't strike anyone as plausible. But it seems to me like it's, it's quite analogous to the view that, well, let's just, let's just enforce the right views. Let's just allow freedom of speech for the right speech. No, I agree. I agree. And as I say, I, I think we'd be better off, we'd be better off if there weren't the sort of ideological capture of, of our institutions and of some, some whole fields but I, th I, think there are, I think there are stronger arguments and arguments that, I, that excite me as a philosopher more that suggest that even if one's right in not having to fear being oppressed by other people, still you're not actually, you're not actually succeeding in a deep way by driving them off the platform. I agree with you about um, the practical on the practical issue, even though I find that other, I find those other arguments, the arguments that actually there's a, there, there is a sense in which people with politically unpopular views in the media and in academia are at an advantage. I mean, it doesn't make it an overall advantage. It doesn't make it an, over, an advantage that overcomes the systematic bias on hiring and admissions and things like that. But we have an advantage that we, are, we know what the arguments of the opposition are because we're confronted by them every day. And because of their success in institutional capture and in um, sort of social silencing of unpopular opinion, they don't. So I want to I want to hit you with a, with an extended analogy, an extended analogy to see what you think of hit it. Me. 
my dad's a real fan of Lord of the Rings. I read it once and seen the movies a bunch of times. I don't know if you've read it. You're probably familiar, though. I, I, I read it way back. I remember my father reading it to me when I was, uh, when I was just a boy and going through all, all four, the trilogy and the, and the Hobbit as well. So. so I'm thinking, what if we analogized the uh, uh, censorship with, with the ring of power, right? Where there's, they're considering... Toward the, end of the, toward the end of this saga, they're considering whether they should destroy this ring of power or whether this one king is just going to, we're just going to keep it away in a vault somewhere. We're not going to destroy it. And, and then, you know, use it only, only when you really, really have to, right? Need, they want to destroy the ring because if it, gets, if it gets in the hands of the big baddie, Sauron, you know, Middle Earth is doomed. But uh, what if we, what if we, instead of destroying it, what if we just, we just kept it and, and used it when we really needed it? So the reason that's bad is because, you know, eventually, eventually the wrong person is going to get the ring of power, point one. Second point, it actually corrupts the character of the person who has it. And this sort of unifies, I think, the two arguments that we're talking about. There's the practical argument, which is eventually your censorship norms that you endorse, they're going to fall in the hands of the people you think are the baddies. And second, I think this is closer to the kind of argument, the principled argument you want to push, is it actually corrupts the person who has it, right? Your ability to shut up the person you disagree with is actually bad for you and corrupting in your own mind and principle, regardless of those practical concerns. I like it. I agree. All right. I think we've gone on for a bit now. I don't know that I have anything further to add. Do you have any further thoughts? No, I think we covered, we covered most of what I had to say. Uh, you know, these are, th these are great topics. There's certainly more to be said about them, but uh, I, think we, I think we covered a lot of bases anyway. All right. Well, I'm interested in probing your version of consequentialism in more detail, and maybe we can save that for another day. I'd be happy to do that. Good luck with this project, and thanks for having me on. No problem. Uh, take care. Take care.